and we are live for season two everyone hope everyone has been safe and well and for those who have just joined us my name is Mayank and I'm one of your co-hosts alongside Sunny and Ujwal and boy do we have an episode for you guys today a couple months back I sat down with Tom Boyd he's an ex-airport footballer and former number one draft pick where he played for the GWS Giants and the Western Bulldogs in today's conversation, we uncover Tom's story a little bit more, with his battle with mental health and dealing with expectations forming a key part of our conversation. We also touch on different topics concerning the world of journalism and social media. We do hope you guys enjoyed this conversation, and if you would like to find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do, please do check out our Instagram page, at BottledUpOz. So without further ado, over to you, Tom. Tom, welcome to Bottled Up. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. It's um, It's been a while since I've done any podcasting, so I'm uh, looking forward to the next era. So, No, it's, it's great, man. And, and on behalf of the Bottle Up team, and you know, I'm sort of speaking for Sunny and Nujal here as well, You know, we'd like to thank you so much for, for coming on because obviously there's a lot to unpack with your with your story as an ex-AFL footballer. And you know, you know, obviously we're very, we're really appreciative of, of you coming on. So thank you so much. No, no, no worries. Um, I'm, I, as I said, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It's... Uh, it's really critical time for people in, in general. And I think, um, you know, with the sheer amount of sig- significant issues that, you know, primarily I feel like are, are really making people struggle mentally, but there's so many different layers to, to the, the things that are going on at the moment. And, you know, part of it is, is those young people sort of that are at our age or, you know, in the sort of prime of their working the beginning of their working life and, um, and now we're dealing with this, you know, enormous shift in culture and, and society and, Trying to work our way through it is is part of the part of the equation going forward. Mm, yep, that's very well said. And you know, we always start off the the podcast with there with a question. You know, how are you? How are you doing? You're currently in regional Victoria, is that right? Correct. Yeah, um, we've had a bit of a, a family occurrence that forced us to move down a, a few months ago, and um, that that's all cleared up. But uh, we are. We're going well, yeah. So Anna and I, my fiance, we've sort of really put it to ourselves to try and make the best of it, and um, we've been heavily investing in a, sort of a few different areas. Um, and one of the the core things that I really um, picked up on early in the year, because you know, with all the uncertainty, sort of, it felt okay putting life on hold with the first round of lockdowns, and then you know, as we sort of came out of that, it's like, all right, now we're going to get moving, and we're going to gain some momentum. Then we went back in and out, and, and, and that just sheer fluctuation of, um, of consistency and what we're allowed to do from a work point of view and also from a what does the future look like point of view. It was important that, at least for me, that I really honed in on what I wanted to achieve this year. And being in the event space and the public speaking space, most of that stuff really slowed down. And, and a lot of the companies who manage these things have essentially gone into um, you know zero activity because it's it's a really sort of old archaic models in some ways and and, and the events business um, is slow to move towards the virtual space and so I essentially lost a lot of the speaking work that I had lined up but I was like well there's no way that I'm wasting the next six months and or well, at the time I probably thought it was a couple of months but now it's six months and and who know who knows how long until we're you know back up to what was normal and so I sort of have dedicated myself to, um, you know, accomplishing the, the end of my study, which will culminate in a couple of weeks in a business degree. Um, and I've continued to move into the virtual space from a speaking point of view and really trying to hone my ability to spread positivity in the community um, through, you know, utilizing social media probably more than I have in the past um, and then working in, in a number of different businesses to try and sort of upskill myself during this period of time. Mm. 
And I'd say that, you know, one of the positives, if there, if there were any positives that came out of this pandemic, is that, you know, mental health is finally getting the recognition that it deserves in society. Um, and I understand that, you know, you're, you're a mental health advocate now and, you know, you go and speak at many different firms. And it's it's so great to see that we're slowly starting to see a bit of a, a shift in that dialogue and, and sort of a shift in culture of, around mental health. Yeah. And what you're really talking about there is um, it's an opportunity and and it's not positive if we don't do something about it. And this is sort of what I've sort of um, been trying to deliver in many of my speaking engagements is that whilst 2020 is a significant challenge and um, for instance, a good example is speaking to the year 12s um, and going through this period of time is extraordinarily challenging as a young person regardless. You've got the first real cornerstone moment in your life where your value in society is somewhat measured. It's, you know, you're getting your ATAR marks. It's not the end of the world, right? But it, it is it is significant. And for a lot of people, it is the most significant thing that they've had to achieve this, um, this far in their lives. So for them, when I have spoken to them is that the opportunity is that if you can get this part right and you can support each other and you can work out what works for you, uh, for you from a mental health space and realize that you know, tough times only make tough people if you work out how to you know, manage those tough periods of time. You know, tough people don't have to endure on their own. And if you can get that right and, and your cohort and this broader age group of um, just as a microcosm of community can get this, this element of time correct and treat it as an opportunity and capitalize on it, well, suddenly then we're going to have, you know, the, the future leaders and the managers and the politicians and the lawyers and the accountants, all of these core industry members, the tradesmen, they're all coming out of a time of adversity where they've had to learn to deal with struggle. But that only comes if you invest in it and it only comes if you listen and learn and, and educate yourself on what not only works generally, but also investing time into to working out what works for you from, from an overcoming adversity perspective. Yeah, and I really like how you sort of phrase that, Tom. It, it, you've sort of taken this uh, this time as an opportunity, an opportunity to take a, a step back and say, well, okay, like if, if I can get through this, then you know I can sort of use this as the yardstick or, or reference point to, to deal with other situations that may arise in the future, which I think is is, is super super important as well. Um, but when I take a look at your life, Tom, and, and I sort of take a snapshot of who you are and, and what you do and you know what you mean to me and, and and millions of other Australians out there. I always sort of saw you as someone that, you know, on the surface that had everything. You know, you, you had the dream job, um, living in you're sort of living the boyhood dream of essentially kicking the, the premiership ceiling goal in the twenty sixteen granny and, you know, forgive me, I I I still uh, hear BT's commentary still ringing my ears all these years later. So <laughs> yeah. Um, but but when I but then I saw you on the last time I cried, which is an incredible initiative by the AFL, and the entire nation saw a completely different side to you, a, a more vulnerable side, um, and it sort of alludes to this idea of you know wearing a mask. And and I must admit that you know there are many people in my sort of you know immediate circle of family and friends that um, that do wear that mask, and you know especially people in the spotlight as well. They they can't really you know they have, they're kind of forced to cover up their struggles. Did you find that in, in terms of you specifically, and it's talking about your story specifically, that you were sort of guilty of the same thing? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, and it's a few different elements to the, to the questioning. I mean, the first and foremost is that I think young people, they don't intention, um, or their intentions aren't to cover up who they truly are, but often we don't really know. Um, and this 
sort of idea around self-discovery and understanding, you know, what motivates you, what you care about, what gets you up in the morning when things aren't going well, or how to mitigate some of those challenging periods of time is something you only really get through experience. And, and you only really get through experience when you specifically invest in those periods of time, as I sort of touched on earlier. And I think um, from my point of view, you know, I've been graced with a thousand things in my life more that I'm so lucky to have and I truly am and I and I'm eternally grateful for them Um, but I didn't get to become grateful for them until I went through the period of time where I was like trying to deal with this identity crisis that was going on in my head and part of that was the fact that you know proportionally as my career was heading in an upward direction my mental health was going the absolute opposite opposite way and you know, trying to proportionally put more and more time into my career so that I could get myself to the point where the career would just overtake the rest of how I was feeling was, it was a really futile attempt for me to, um, to try and mitigate some of the things that were going on. And I think that's where the mask sort of appears because suddenly I'm just Tom the footballer and focusing on and me performing on the weekend or, you know, me acting a certain way. Most of my interests and, and my ability to communicate is at least limited primarily because of the way that the football industry is and it's um, part and parcel of being a you know a sort of custodian of the the Bulldogs brand or the Giants brand or anyone in the AFL and so developing the who Tom the person is outside the footballer was the the challenge and because it's easier to ignore all these things until you get to the point where it's so bad that you have to do something about them that's the way that I did it And and my whole intention of going out and sharing the story is the fact that doesn't work it doesn't it doesn't work pretending that you're one thing when you're not and it doesn't work just denying some of the emotional and mental struggles that you're having because as time goes on they'll continue to get exacerbated um, depending on the scenario you're in and if you want to push yourself for high performance in a work um, context then you need to invest in the fact that your mental health and your physical health and your emotional health is your sustainable um, the sustainability piece that has to run concurrently alongside your, your work performance. And otherwise, one of them is going to give. And ultimately, for me, it was my mental health. And then ultimately, uh, afterwards, there was my career. Was there a gray area in, in terms of, you know, wearing that mask? Or was it more of a black and white thing where, you know, you are, you are your true and authentic self in front of your friends and family? Or, you know, did that line sort of get blurred between your football and personal life? No, it's a it's a really good question, and, and I don't um, I don't think I, I per se had two two personas. What I think happened generally was that it was much easier for me to exist as a footballer because it was a very X's and O's focus on this, do this, do that, and sort of from the having to face the challenges you're going through, I could ignore most of them whilst I was at football. And whilst you know, don't get me wrong, I was under an intense amount of pressure from you know a performance point of view from everyone around me it it was easier just to focus on that than it was to deal with some of the emotional problems I was having outside the game and so much like many people who exhibit mental health issues I was slowly but surely pulling that social aspect out of my life as I felt less comfortable around family and friends I felt less comfortable in public I began to have you know significant issues with social anxiety um, and slowly but surely just retracted into this small shell of capacity which was football and home and that was it and so the problem with doing that is that suddenly the world is your enemy. And, you know, un, uh, inevitably, if you're a public figure, you're going to have interactions with people. And particularly if you're a public figure with the 
reputation that I was sort of living at the time, which was an overpaid young footballer who wasn't quite living up to the hype, well, then inherently the conversations are going to twist towards a negative um, phase at some state. And unless you have the um, inner strength and inner understanding to know who you are and what you're trying to achieve, well, then those comments and those um, you know, interactions, which on a daily basis continue to you know, mount and mount and mount until they were you know, unbearable, they're going to have a really, really big impact on how you feel about yourself. And, and that's where getting to know who you are is more important than what you do. And did that commentary perhaps provide a fuel to, to this idea of this imposter syndrome? Like, I mean, as an, as an 18-year-old receiving that much flack, um, did that fuel any sort of self-doubt about your own skills as to whether you could actually make it as an, as an AFL footballer? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, look, part of it was that football's challenging. Um, and certainly I had my doubts about... Um, you know, how I was performing. But I think ultimately the real challenge for me was trying to personally cope with the thing, the fact that every time something went poor on the field, it was like Tom's a bad person. And at least that's what it felt like. And I think, you know, from a, um, from a personal point of view, the disassociation between, um, as I've sort of mentioned a couple of times, who I was and what I did was the really integral factor in me going on this downhill slide because, you know, I'd been brought up with, you know, high level integrity for my parents, strong, um, strongly instilled that education was important, uh, strongly instilled that being, you know, well-mannered and treat people with respect and leadership and all the things that we all get sort of brought up with um, from a values point of view. What I found was, and this, whether this was something that I manifested to a degree in my own head or not, but what I found was that over time, it was like, it doesn't matter what you do during the week. It doesn't matter if you're um, training well or doing this or doing that because if you don't perform on the weekend then you know you're a bad person or at least that's how I interpreted it and when you couple that with you know these performance goals that are so high based on the fact that I was you know getting paid an exorbitant amount of money it makes for a very difficult um, ability, like dif- difficult to feel like you're achieving what you're supposed to and you know keep in mind that when I signed my my seven-year deal with the Bulldogs. I was, you know, 18, just turned 19 years old. And I'd, um, I'd played seven or eight or nine games of AFL footy. I barely knew which way I was up and I'd spent 11 months on the road living in Sydney. And so I'd suddenly walk back in, but age is not a factor when you're getting paid that much. And I think yeah, the inability for me to sort of find satisfaction in the way I was improving rather than simply setting my sights on this, you know, almost unobtainable goal of perfection was the reason why it was such a challenge for me. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure it would have been such a significant challenge. And, you know, on the back of sort of being that number one draft pick, you know, you joined GWS and you're rubbing shoulders with the best players in the country. And it's it's such a, from the outside looking in, it, it seems like such a competitive environment. And it sort of translates to different fields, especially in the corporate setting. You know, you've got you've got a squad of about 40 to 50 people, maybe more, maybe less, and you're vying for 22-odd spots in the, in the side. And inevitably, there are going to be people that are left out. Were you able to sort of stay true to yourself and, and your values and, and have that delineation of, you know, Tom, the, the AFL footballer, and, you know, the, I guess, the more authentic Tom boy? Yeah, I didn't do it very well, as evidenced by some of the struggles <laughs> I faced. Um, <laughs> 
Look, it is a really challenging thing. And one of the core elements when we talk about from a corporate you know, correlation point of view, it's, it's the cultural um, expectations of the people. And, and that comes down to management. It comes down to um, interaction with the employees, um, which in, in our case is the players and also the staff. Um, and it's about how we translate values and you know the morality of being a person throughout this high performance industry and i think um you know the clubs who get it right which is the clubs who empower their players to be you know themselves and you know this performance the core element of performance is still you know paramount to everything but at the same time it doesn't limit people from being who they are it doesn't limit people from the obligations to treat each other with respect um, or the community with respect and, and the broader people around them. And I think my, my challenges were trying to disassociate, my, again, myself from the footballer to, to the person that I was. And um, that wasn't uh, you know, something I did intentionally, but it was certainly um, you know, a part and parcel of me not being quite sure who I was and also being under probably the most scrutiny of just about any 18-year-old ever. Mm. And I recall that, you know, from, from your previous talks and, and interviews about social media and the, and the role that that plays in society. And I think we actually realize, we don't actually realize that, you know, sometimes the reach and influence that some people have on the social media platform. And, and I remember an interview that Sam Destiari gave on Q&A um, where he spoke about how, you know, whenever someone launches abuse onto someone else on social media, we, we kind of forget to remember that, you know, there are actually real people behind this and it's it's also it's also explained really well in this social dilemma documentary um and how certain experiences with social media can be you know unpleasant yeah yeah for sure i mean look my experience on social media up until probably a few years ago was pretty rough um and look i went through a few different phases with it and i always try and advise people to to be cognizant to the dangers of social media and educate yourself on it because exposing yourself when you're in a transitional period is really challenging, uh, particularly if you have a lot of interactions like I was. Um, But look, I think um, the biggest challenge for me was that I was hearing the same rhetoric over and over and over and over again. And no matter how strong you are mentally, if you surround yourself with it, which is probably one of the mistakes that I made at at times, then eventually it starts to ring true in your own head. And, And the counter of that was, well, I'm just going to shut it all out. But because of my profile at the time and the connotations of my contract, inherently I was going to see it somewhere. And if you make yourself so isolated like I did, then suddenly the sort of the value or the weighting placed on those individual comments, whether it be in the newspaper or the TV or the radio or just a passive by having a go at you or, you know, I remember getting abused whilst going through the grand final parade for the same thing. So then the weighting of those has such um, a high level of significance because you're trying to avoid them and, and you're very, uh, very hypersensitive to it. But, you know, from a societal point of view, the one element is, sure, you don't understand the impact that you're having on those people um, when you say something bad. And, I, you know, I certainly don't condone people abusing other people online. But the flip side of that argument and, and something that I've come to peace with is that I also don't know why those people are venting their frustration in the way that they're doing it. And from my perspective, I know that, you know, what pain looks like, pain and trauma, it manifests so often in that outward projecting negativity. And so for me, 
coming to peace with my own ability to deal with criticism. And I'm not saying that I'm immune, but one of the things that I've done to be able to deal with it more so is to show some empathy and understand that the, the answer is not abusing them back. You know, we've polarized our society be, because people want to abuse each other. And then inherently, when someone gets abused, they get defensive and then they move back to where they're comfortable. And so what that does is just push people to the poles. And how are we going to solve any problems if everyone's sitting on either side of the fence yelling at each other? It just doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I put up a post recently on LinkedIn around um, this exact concept about how negativity breeds negativity. It's been seen by 120,000 people. And so there is a clear desire and an interest in it. Um, but we need to personally invest in it. And, and from a community point of view, you're talking about going through struggles at the moment. Well, the way you express positivity is by getting your own kitchen in order and it's by dealing with some of the mental health challenges that we're all going through at the moment. It's by getting yourself into a place where you don't have to react that way when you see something negative because you're comfortable enough in yourself and you know yourself well enough that the answer is not abusing the other person and the answer is to show compassion or show you know, the ability to ignore that, um, that, that wry comment mm -hmm. and then you know, over time, if we can sort of have that attitude of paying it forward rather than waiting for someone to act nicely to us, then, you know, maybe we see a societal shift on these platforms. Yeah, that, that's really powerful. And I actually saw that, that post as well. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I actually asked the question at the end, because it's, it's, it was right after the Tigers. Um, sorry, not the Tigers. It was, it was right the after the, uh, the Saints. Yes, the Saints yeah. beat the, the Bulldogs. And I, I could really see the passion within the post because, you know, I feel like you also experience the same thing, um, which is really which is really interesting. And sort of shifting from the social side of things to the more journalistic side and, and looking back at, the in sort of, at all your sort of interviews, it seems to me that the role of the journalist is, is so changing, especially in the current environment. I mean, they're, they're the ones that sort of put everyone, um, that sort of create the demand and, and the attention around the game and... You know, I'm not going to lie. I love reading a headline. Um, we all do. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, do you think that like journalists should be a bit more held accountable for some of the things that they say in, um, in the media? I don't know. I, I've been asked this question a lot. I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. I don't have any bitterness towards the people who obviously targeted me at points in my career. I tend to think within the AFL community, you know, these targeted um, approaches where there's 10 different outlets doing the same thing at one player. And, you know, it happens a handful of times a year. I, I can't stand those because I've sort of been on the end of it. But, um, look, I don't see any reason to, you know, oppress the media's ability to report on the game in a way that, you know, gains attention and brings in revenue, and that's what they're there for. And I think, you know, this shifting model of the news and, um, you know, media outlets being our source of factual inf information is been quite clearly debunked in the last four or five years. And, and so I think disassociating the, the credence we place on what they say is, you know, something to, to be held with reverence to, okay, well, this is an entertainment outlet. That's the way we have to move. And, and part of the, look, and this is, a, this is a general issue that I think all of us deal with at some stage. Our tendency is when we see a problem that we don't like is to blame the other person. And and yes, there are certainly instances where the media can improve their reporting. There is certainly instances where they not only invade the privacy of players or people in general, or they have targeted abuse, or in some cases, they just blatantly make things up. But 
much like any of these other problems we're talking about, we can't control the situations and the circumstances of, of those people and the decisions that they're making. Sometimes it's their decision, sometimes it's someone higher up the food chain who's telling them this is what we need to report because it's gonna get attention, which it does. So in that scenario, well, how are we gonna change that? We can't. And then we need to move back to, well, okay, if this is the reality we're living in, how do we best cope with it? Not only on an individual sense, but from a cultural sense, how do you know the AFL deal with it? How do the AFL Players Association deal with it? How does the interaction between you know the, the all of the stakeholders in this conversation work together to get the best outcome for everyone? Because at the end of the day, everyone's there to make money, but we don't want that to be at the cost of people, and we don't want it to be the cost of journalists. We don't want it to be the cost of players, managers, people within the AFL. At the end of the day, we want everyone to be able to get through this in, in one piece and, and live happy, happy lives. And I don't think there's too many people that don't ultimately want that as the goal. Um, but we are going to have to make some steps in some way, shape or form from a relationship point of view, I think, to mitigate some of the challenges they're facing. Do you have an idea of what that might look like? Not particularly. I think part of the challenge um, is openness. And, you know, I've found over the years, not only with myself, but with others that Completely denying access to the media doesn't work. Also letting them in everywhere doesn't work. And, and I think there's got to be a, a better relationship with these, um, with these outlets. But there's also the you know, commercial reality that, which is heavily commented on and, and sort of described in, in modern day um, conversations. But the, the old model of reading the newspaper is so long gone in the sense of it being the only source of news. And so, what happens when you need to report quickly is that you take a hop, skip and a jump to the truth often. And often it's about grabbing people's attention or a headline, as you mentioned earlier. And, and that's, that's a reality. That's a reality of us as consumers consuming news that way. And so you can't stop the way that, you know, mass psychology works. And I think, again, it's about taking the problem back into your own hands and really trying to work out how do we teach our players and young people in particular to deal with these um these challenging circumstances mm, yeah definitely um so we've spoken a little bit about journalism and, and that relationship that that has with football um and it, it'd be fair to say that it definitely occupied and defined essentially the first part of your footballing career and, and i wanted to sort of fast forward a little bit here to the 2016 grad final where it's about five minutes to go and your side's up by around 10 points. You've probably played one of the one of the best games of your career. Um, are you able to sort of articulate, you know, that moment when you kicked that goal and, you know, your arms are raised in the middle of the MCG? And was there a sense of euphoria that went deeper than having just kicked the match-winning goal to win a flag? Or was it more of a cathartic experience for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, look, certainly at the moment, in the moment, I think it's more of an emotional rather than a cognitive feeling. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a inherently super spiritual person but i think there is something tangible about you know the human to human connection and we're talking about the best part of a hundred thousand people in the stadium and millions more watching the game basically all cheering at the same time or showing that same emotion that i was and in a weird way i'm sort of the vessel for all of this you know combination of pandemonium that was happening around me both within the stadium and, and more broadly and i think from that point of view it was you know, truly a, a significant moment in my life and something that was you know, remarkable to even think about now. But from a, um, from a, cathartic, a cathartic sort of moment and whether that was, you know, I've done it, 
Well, you know, funnily enough, I, I never really considered it to be about me as much as some people may have liked to have believed. I mean, I certainly played a really um, brilliant game that day and it was one of the best of my career and I, I, I'm proud that I did. Um, and I'm proud that I you know, was able to accomplish what I did. But at the same time, let's not be, um, you know, to romanticise it too much, there was a, such a large cohort of players that played out of their skin, not only that day, but in the prelude. And this was a two-year journey since I'd arrived at the football club to get to where we got to. And not to mention before that, the significant amount of effort that all the core elements of the club had put in to put us in a place to be able to sort of accomplish things um, in the 2015 and 16 season. So from that point of view, I don't. But the one thing I do remember very vividly, and this is maybe naivety or hope, I'm not sure exactly, but it was a, a sort of feeling of surely they'll leave me alone now. Like this is surely they'll give me a, just a tad of breathing space. Um, as though, you know, what I'd been able to achieve was at least a, a breath of fresh air for people and that I could lean on it for some space to develop further over the coming years. And unfortunately, that's not the case and it wasn't the case. But um, again, this is sort of lends itself back to, well, whose fault was it? Well, at the end of the day, I, I wasn't in a place to tolerate the amount of scrutiny that I was because I wasn't aware of how much I was struggling until I was. And 2016 in many ways was a wonderful experience but it was also probably the uh, the core element of my life that was positive that allowed me to ignore all the negative stuff that was going on and once the wave uh, the walls came crashing down at the end of 2016 and sort of life hit me square in the in the jaw it was pretty obvious that all of these you know huge problems that I'd come through my mental health had hit a pretty serious roadblock and mm-hmm. I tolerated them for another eight months or you know whatever it was until I took time away from the game but you know the, I, the experience through that 2016 season was probably more of a, um, a preventative measure or a, a measure mm. to delay my suffering rather than something that was going to fix it. Mm. It seems to me like it was kind of a delineation between like your phys- again like your physical side and your AFL career and like your personal life I mean because you were experiencing such a such a euphoric moment and you could accomplish so much in the game that it's sort of allowed you to sort of take a bit of a turn a blind eye to what you were actually how you were actually feeling would that be a good way of articulating it i don't yeah maybe blind eye might not be correct i think um it made it more tolerable um, yeah. and so like get back to the idea about positivity breeding positivity which i sort of mentioned in my mm. in my post as we spoke about earlier mm. the um the fact that my work life was overwhelmingly you know momentous mm. in, particularly in the back half of 2016 meant that it was, you know, a contagious atmosphere to be in. And not only that, I mean, it can't be understated, the amount of energy that was moving through the western um, suburbs of Melbourne, Footscray in particular, particularly in the last six or seven weeks of that year. Like, it was just Mm. purely remarkable. Mm. Um, And it was something that not only was channeled out of that, you know, small microcosm of Melbourne, but then more broadly across the country, it was mm. sort of like, okay, this is the Bulldogs year. It's a fairy tale ending. Mm. And that's a, an enormously powerful thing because, mm. you know, we're inherently interpersonal beings and I was connected to my teammates in such a way that we were all feeling the same thing. We we're all going for the same thing. Um, and then that as a small tribe connected to the broader sort of community that was supporting us. It's a pretty good um, motivating factor, but it's very difficult to maintain for long periods of time. And, you know, for six weeks, that was 
about as long as it could have gone for and then reality kicks in once it finishes it's interesting you say that because you know people do move on pretty quickly and it actually reminds me your story actually reminds me reminds me a bit of uh, travis cloak um you know, he he left the Collingwood Football Club pretty much, you know, having delivered a cup for them and then was booed off <laughs> the first game that he played for you guys. Um, and he's obviously, his mental health struggles have also been, been pretty well documented as well. And it seems to me that, you know, that something very sort of similar happened with, with, with the Bulldogs team as well, especially with the disappointments of the 2017 and 2018 Premiership seasons. And it's a really good segue into this next part of your life, Tom. And, and it was that 2017 year and you know, your, your mental health struggles were um, obviously, you know, pretty well documented at the time. And, you know, I really wanted to ask you, was there a, a moment in your life where you thought like, yeah, shit, I'm, I'm really struggling here. I'm, I'm really struggling and, you know, something something needs to change? Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've documented it a few times, but there, there was a moment in time where, you know, the, the sort of, the the walls had come to a, crashing down to a point where I didn't really have a choice, um, and it was a you know a day in July. It was just before I took time off, and essentially I'd reached the stage of barely sleeping. I mean, look, I'd had sleep issues since 2014, my first season in the AFL, and we're talking about three, four years later, three and a half years later. Um, and so over time, it had been just such a big part of my life, and then it had got to the point where it was you know, four or five nights a week, I was barely sleeping at all. And then I got to the stage where, you know, I was not sleeping at all for weeks on end. And that alongside this mounting, you know, self-doubt and self, you know, depreciation in the value I felt about what I was and who I was. And um, and then the depression that I was dealing with based on the fact that not only A, was I obviously feeling pretty terrible at, about who I was because I hadn't done the work. And also... Secondarily, because I was, <clears throat> excuse me, was so tired and um, and fatigued all the time, and once all of those things came together, I essentially just reached a stage where trying to work out what was going to come next was almost impossible. And and, and, and are you able to articulate the reason for that insomnia? Yeah, look, I mean, there's so many different elements, but one of the ways that I'd used to describe it is, um, you know, I was so consumed by my football, and football had become you know such a enormous part of my life that. You know, as I went through the years and, uh, you know, I sort of talk about the, the disassociation or the, the, the trend of my career versus the trend of my mental health, as I try to compensate more and more and spend more and more time on my career and my football, and, um, and, and that's not just from a physical point of view and, you know, whether people agree or not doesn't really um, bother me, but it, it became such an obsessive part of who I was. You know, it was like going to the shops. I was a footballer and I began to be really conscious of people around me. It was being at home, like, what are you eating or what are you doing next? And whether I got all those things right all the time, it doesn't really matter. But what the fact that it was consuming my thoughts throughout the day was an exhausting part. But then what happened was that once the minutes in the day ran out, it began to eat into my nights. And so often I'd feel, um, you know, this sort of sense of, um, you know, anxiety or stress or, and the emotions would vary from time to time, but the just sheer inability to get any quality sleep um, over time. And look, we don't know exactly why it happens. I mean, clearly there's some trauma going on and clearly there's a, an issue that's deeper than just sleeplessness, but it certainly exacerbated the problems that were going on. And, and that's the, the way I like to describe it as though, you know, once, once football ran out of time to consume me during the day, then it began to consume me at night as well. And, um, 
yeah, slowly but surely it became such a stressful part of my life that um, it was pretty pretty impossible for me just to get a good night's rest. And you're sort of touching on there this this, this whole relationship that, that physical health has with mental health. And, you know, it's uh, a lot of people don't know that, but that's actually something which is a real, real tangible thing. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, people forget. I mean, so when I took time away from the game, and I mean, look, they don't forget, but it was sort of not the most important part. But contextually for me, it was important was that one of the ways that reasons it's been so easy for me to share my journey in terms of mental health is because it was so tangible to me at the time. You know, I was getting sick because I was, again, so fatigued and my immunity was breaking down. My physical body had started to break down. I think I'd missed, um, I'd basically just gotten through with this ongoing back issue at the time. And then I had a calf injury, I believe, at the end of a game against St Kilda. And then I had a week off and then I might've missed one more game. And anyway, I was supposed to return through the VFL because I'd sort of, come in and out of the side and I'd been barely training. And that was when, you know, I basically just got to the stage where I knew my body couldn't do it anymore. And I knew that my mind couldn't cope with any more of this struggle that I was going through. And just physically, mentally, emotionally, I was just such a small fraction of what I used to be that it was time to make a change. And, you know, the way I describe it is, well, it was either going to go one way or the other. And I mean that in the sense that I was either going to turn it around there before it became almost impossible or, you know, I was going to slip further and further into this, you know, depressive state that I was in and, and who knows what would have happened. So I'm glad that I made the, the phone call to the psychologist and I'm glad that I um, invested the time and, and prioritised my mental health because it's, you know, truly the most important thing. It's what controls our mind, it's what it controls our body, our emotions, our relationships, our work. I mean, unfortunately, without a, you know, a mental state that's, um, you know, operating at a capacity that can deal with life as, as we know it, then we can't um, contribute what we'd like to to society or to the people around us. Mm. You spoke a bit about, you know, the relationship that you had with your psychologist. And I think you mentioned her, her name in, in the last time I cried as well in, that, in the interview, Lisa. Yeah. Um, could you explain, like, you know, how was that? Did you feel like a weight lifted off your shoulders a little bit? I mean, I know you, you, you've mentioned before that you you're very open about your, your mental struggles and you're, you're very happy to, to you know, share your story a little bit in the, in the media and for, for people to know. But having that connection with, with someone like, you know, that, you, that you've known for a while, was that some, like, can you explain to me that, how that relationship was and you know, you know, how it felt to you know, get your emotions out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's, um, it's an it's a integral part. I mean, look, I still speak to Lisa very regularly now. Um, and one of the, the core things that I often try and debunk to a point of view is this idea that psychologists are simply going to work through trauma and they're only there for when things turn really bad. And look, my relationship with Lisa up until um, the point where things got really bad, because I hadn't shared a, most of this stuff with her up until around, oh, it must have been October 2017, you know, or probably later actually, when now that I think about it, maybe November, sort of as we would move back into preseason. Our relationship previously had been associated around performance. It had been how about um, how to best, you know, prepare for games mentally, or how to best, um, you know, work on my goal kicking routine. It was just all the little things that, you know, performance um, psychologists can help you with. And I think one thing that I sort of try and um, help people understand is that psychologists are essentially performance coaches that help you deal with your emotions and help you deal with some of the challenges you might face and ultimately allow you to walk out of the session having a plan with how you're going to overcome some of the challenges that you've had. 
and I think from a you know a cathartic and a and a proactive point of view, that's where I was using Lisa, which was really great. Um, but then obviously as things got worse and worse, she became, you know, my sounding board and, and my person who I could sort of develop my own story with and deal with some of the challenges whilst also primarily being extraordinarily lucky because she had a role within the club. So she could not only um, manage me from a personal point of view, but logistically sort of implement some of the things that we were trying to change, which is very rare for people to be able to have access to. And my only thing that I really struggle with when I'm trying to talk to people about seeing psychologists is I understand there's so many barriers to entry that you know we're trying to overcome at the moment there's you know there's sheer uncomfortability there's the cost there's accessibility there's the fear of trying out so many different ones that don't work and, and I sort of was lucky enough not to have those barriers to entry and so part of my hope and part of my you know conversations is Let's push the issue and try and get a better situation where people can access this help that they need so much. I mean, particularly at the moment, there's got to be a way that we can um, continue to not only educate people, but how to navigate the system, but educate people and fund it and allow people to, to get the help that they deserve. Because, you know, mental health is the, the catalyst for a thousand different issues that is going on in society and if we can you know properly address that and give people the help that they need then i i think you know from a cultural point of view we're going to see a massive shift yeah and having access is really the key point there because i've seen around and these sessions can cost quite an exorbitant amount of money and you know for some people who aren't financially well off they can definitely be seen as um a barrier to entry for, for those who want to seek help and um, you know, you sort of you sort of touched on this a little bit with your relationship with Lisa, your psychologist, um, and obviously she was part of the Western Bulldogs. But but were the Western Bulldogs really good in the way that they dealt with your situation after you came out? As in, was there a general understanding on how to handle such a situation? Yeah, look, the the Bulldogs um, first and foremost, thankfully, had a wonderful structure that, to support me. Um, so Lisa was obviously there at the time, and then Brent Prisma did a wonderful job. And I think as a culture, we were very accepting of each other, which was enormously uh, enormously helpful. Which I, I don't underestimate as something that was incredibly powerful in the way that I sort of found my feet again. Um, and look, I mean, there's always going to be bits that they didn't get right, and um, I don't have any qualms about it um, to this day. I just think that, you know, being one of probably the first people ever to come out and openly say, look, I can't play the game because I'm struggling so much. Um, and again, mine was a, a physical correlation with the mental health issues I was feeling that really prevented me from being on the field. Um, and that's a difficult one for people to understand. Um, it's almost as like, well, you're feeling sad. Why can't you just go up and kick a footy? I mean, and that's that's a, just a significant challenge for sporting clubs to understand um, more generally. And I think more than anything that um, not only the club, but the league will have learned some lessons from you know the, the broader conversation as we all educate ourselves a bit better. And, um, you know, we're going on, what, four years since... Um, this all happened and, and think about how much time uh, how much ground we've made as a society in this space since then and, and the AFL is no different so again I don't have any um, any issues with the way that they handled me at the time I think they did the best with what they could and um, it's just a it's a really challenging space and much like any injury that you can't see um, impatience is always the biggest challenge I mean trying to get people out on the on the park when they've got a you know, a, a sore back compared to a broken arm is a completely different scenario because, um, you know, you can see the injury and you can see the progress and 
it's very um, a line, it's very linear recovery. Whereas you know mental health and and some other of these injuries and ailments that people go through aren't. And for people who are trying to you know, from a performance point of view, get from A to B, well, it's, um, it can be really frustrating and difficult to tolerate, um, you know, that dis- disassociation between, you know, tracking in the right direction and being able to measure improvement and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, like I said, they did a wonderful job with what they could. And, and luckily enough, like just, just as we were saying before, structurally they were set up to deal with it, which is awesome. great because yeah. that's that's the number one thing. Yeah, that's really good, and especially given that, you know, you were one of the first people that came out. It's, it's really good to see that, you know, a club like that, you know, had the systems and processes in place to, to deal with the situation. And I think, you know, even even not for me from a footy football perspective, but even from a general workplace perspective, it's really it's really I guess they can kind of be used as the the yardstick or, you know, the the case study for how to really deal with, with a situation like that, which which seems to be like that seems to be the, the case, which is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think a case study is a better way to describe it. I mean look, they they would say themselves, I'm sure that there's things that they want to improve on and, and it's much like every club. And, and look, the, the, the industry in itself is going through such a transitional period right now that I really do hope that they invest in this area and they don't sacrifice some of the well-being practices that have been so important. Um, but at the same time, um, it's important to recognise that as industries and as organisations as big as football clubs are or as big as you know where you work is, that culturally and the, the, the environment that you set up does play a role in how people feel about themselves. And if you set up a place that is wholesome and fulfilling and engaging, not only are you going to see improvements and continuation in people's having a good mental health space, not without fluctuations, as I said earlier, it's, it's extraordinarily natural, but you're also going to see you know sustainable high-performing industries um, uh, or organizations, I should say, over time. And I think that is the real selling point if you're talking about trying to create an environment that's wholesome is that not only are you going to get happy people, but you're going to get high quality work and you're going to be able to sustain that for long periods of time. And I think that's what the, the great football clubs have done um, historically. And, and, you know, there's sure there's going to be exceptions, but I think the way we're moving now and in particular, you know, you look at Richmond and the way they've been playing over the last years and all the feedback I get is that, you know, they've, created a place that's enjoyable to be at and that's why they're performing and um, I think from a cultural point of view plugging and playing that in in the in the sense that works for your business across the the broader in- industries that are trying to move away from these sort of archaic models that we've dealt with mm. for a long time it's yeah. it's a really um, good incentive to get this stuff right mm. and, and on the topic of archaic models and sort of archaic ways of thinking you mentioned before that one of the the barriers to entry for for people seeking help was, was costs and I also feel like stigma is also another barrier for people, and and, and I always ask my my guests this this exact same question, um, and that is, you know, what do you think the reason behind, you know, why that there's this existence of this stigma is it because of a weakness, or do, do you sort of see um, any sort of rationale behind that? Yeah, look, I think we've made um, some really great strides in this area, and I think um, I think from a conversational point of view, at least from our generation, it's we're in a good space. I really do believe that. Um, and now it's time to get specific um, in terms of the stigma that we're talking about. I don't think, whilst it's still important to have these conversations and awareness is a great thing, I think most people are pretty aware, at least within Australia, that this is a significant challenge we're facing. And so this one that you're talking about specifically about actually going to seek help and why it seems strange, oh, well, you're going to see a psych. Well, 
See, my relationship with it is that there's no stigma because I'm within the AFL industry. And so if that's a good example of, well, hang on a minute, these guys who are considered heroes of the sport that they play, heroes of the country, role, role models, you know, many of them earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, they're doing the dream. I mean, look, if they're able to go and open up and they need the help of these people to perform, then I think it sets a reasonably good example to the rest of the community that this is not a, oh, I'm a crazy person because it's just not the case. It's just not the way that this stuff works. And, you know, from a spectrum of mental health, we're talking about every single person in society operating in the continuum of mental health somewhere. Sliding up and down is extraordinarily normal based on your circumstances. But when people continue to peter down this continuum and keep going in the wrong direction, well, then, you know, there needs to be something done. And, and that's like we spoke about earlier. If there's an injury, will you go and see a doctor or a physiotherapist? Well, if you're trying to continue to maintain or to defend yourself against mental health issues, well, then seeing a psychologist is exactly what they're there for. Um, and from a stigma point of view, that's one of the core elements from a specific point of view that continues to be a challenge. Um, and I think... On that note, you know, we spoke a little bit about earlier about this whole, you know, governmental point of view. Let's get specific about what we're trying to achieve. I think we're past the stage of, hey, let's just make sure everyone knows that mental health is a thing. Well, I think everyone knows. Let's work out how, from a strategic point of view, from the experts who know what they're doing, how do we move forward and set ourselves up for success in this area rather than just hoping or just presuming that because everyone knows about it, it's gonna go away. Well, that's not how things work. We need to strategically plan from a, from a governmental level, from a policy level, from a, um, a community level, how we're going to better cope um, with not only the crisis going on, but let's, let's look to the future. Let's make it a brighter future in this area because mm. um, hoping is not gonna get it done. Yeah, do you have like a vision of what that might look like? Oh, I think the first one is is the the accessibility of help. I, I just can't express yeah. how important that is. And I know we're seeing improvements, but you know, so look, I still get so many people come to me and say, I don't know how. I mean, and I don't have all the answers. And I spend a lot of time working in this space. So, I think you know, normalizing and making it accessible for people to access help is enormously important. Um, from a cultural point of view, continuing to work out the nuances of how we deal with it and how we treat people. Um, education is continuously such an important aspect of this um, this whole equation because it's about how not only we treat people but how we view people. It's about how we separate this idea that we're all fighting against each other and that we're actually moving in the same direction one way or the other. And um, and I think that's you know part of the integral points of view. But then there's also has to be a you know a systematic approach to how we deal with you know all members of our society. And I think. In Australia, we pay a, you know, a huge amount of tax and part of that obviously goes to infrastructure and a thousand other things. And part of it, as a preemptive and a cost-saving manager, uh, measure, I suppose, is to invest in this mental health space because, again, the burdens that you know, people hold um, affect them in a number of different ways. And symptomatically, you know, so much of the, the consist, um, concerns that we have as society are as a result of mental health. So... Um, I not only think that from a, from a morality point of view, it's so important to invest in the mental health side of things, but also from a community point of view and from the way that our society and our cities and our country is operating, this should be right up there as the number one priority. 
Yeah, but the way that I look at the issue as well, Tom, is that you know we shouldn't be investing in the mental health space just because right now everyone's sort of getting affected by it. Um, it's something that should be in the dialogue, particularly from a government perspective, even when mental health isn't at the the precipice of, of everyone's dialogue. Yeah, and it, and you, you, this this recency bias that we all have. Um, is a really important one to mention. And I think there's, there's two parts of it. There's the first, the part that we're talking about now, which is that, I, oh, well, it's just suddenly it's a massive issue. Well, no, that's not true. This has been an issue for a long time and we're slowly but surely getting better. Now, how do we make systematic change? But the other thing is the element and the amount of people that I've spoken to, which I, I feel so, like, I feel so much empathy for, just because of the moment that everyone's struggling and suffering through this crisis, it doesn't mean that anyone's problems are any less significant than they've ever been before. So I hear all the time, this is the rhetoric, and it always goes one of two, it always goes the same way at the conversation. It's always, oh, hey, how are you going? Um, yeah, oh, you know, struggling a little bit. It's been a bit hard. It's a long time in lockdown. Oh, but, you know, everyone's going through it. But that, that's not how this works. So the, how this works is that your problems are just as important to you and the people around you as they ever have been. And so... Just because there is a large cohort of Australia and the world in general suffering because we have this huge pandemic going on doesn't mean that you shouldn't deal with your problems because they are still so important. And I mean that because I care about the people who are talking to me about it and I care that whilst there is an innate amount of challenges in front of us, there's also a certain amount of things that we can control and there's a certain amount of things that we can influence in our own lives that make us feel like better people and make us feel better about ourselves and that there's professionals there to help us along the way. So don't, the easier, I mean, I know this is difficult, but the easy option for a lot of people is to say everyone's suffering. But, and that, and whilst it's a, it's a really, um, it's an admirable way to look at things. It's also not, it's not productive. And if I, if I could leave people with any advice, it would be that if you are struggling at the moment, seek help, talk to some people about it because you don't have to be suffering as much as some people are. And I really do feel that way because, um, you know, the consequences for not dealing with these things as evidenced by my case, they're really significant. Um, and likewise, the opportunities presented once we get on top of this stuff, again, exhibited by the stuff that I'm going through is, is enormous. And it's, it's such something that we should be excited about if we can get right. Yeah, well, 100%. It kind of reminds me of something that you that you mentioned in, in, in a lot of your talks, actually. It's a, it's a Matthew McConaughey's quote on the, uh, the, the evolution of the mind and, you know, and who's a hero and you know, constantly developing and growing. It just reminds me of that for some reason. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a great quote. He's got a couple, obviously, and the all right, all right, all right is everyone's <laughs> favourite. But um, he does this other piece about who's your, um, who's your hero? And he said, oh, well, me in 10 years. And then, you know, the time goes past and 10 years arrives. And he said, oh, so did you get to meet your hero? And he said, oh, no, my hero is me in 10 years again. And, and it's this idea of constant progression and understanding that, you know, at least in my case, if I'm not moving forward, I feel like I'm going backwards. And, and so trying to learn and continue to branch out and develop and and sort of try and holistically develop myself as a human as you know I've got plenty of flaws just like everyone else is is um, an enormously important part of me feeling like I'm achieving things and being satisfied with my life and proud of my life and um, look it's also a, a really strong safeguard against feeling like you're um, you're underachieving or and some of this monotony that a lot of people are feeling at the moment it can in part be dealt with by you know contributing and, and trying to trying to move forward in a positive way. Mm.
Definitely. Um, and I actually remember the speech that he gave as well. It was at the Oscars, um, and it was just after he won. And it was, he was a pretty charismatic speaker as well. So, um, you know, it just sort of just reminded me of that. Um, so I am mindful now, Tom, that, you know, we've, we have gone for just under an hour. And I know how tiring it can be, um, you know, getting questions hurled at you for, for, for an hour straight. So, you know, um, I'd just like to take this opportunity, Tom, to thank you so much for coming on Um you're an incredible person. Um, and was there any sort of last uh, words or parting words that, that you'd like to uh, send to our audience? No, it's been great. Um, it's been a wonderful experience. And look, I think, um, you know, as we talked about specifics earlier, infiltrating the, the small segments of the community that perhaps don't address this area well is the next stage in our development. And we've got a broad conversation going, but we need to make sure that it, it sort of seeps into the areas that inherently haven't dealt with it well in the past. Um, whether that be industry or cultural or whatever it is, um, because you know this is something that afflicts all of us in one way, shape, or form. And um, education is the first step for us being able to deal with it better in the future. And um, you know, look, as I said about a thousand times today, this is the single greatest opportunity for growth we have as a community, and, and that's learning to deal with and manage mental health better. Sound like a poll, Tom. Thank you, thank you so much for that again, Tom. Um, I'll give you a virtual handshake here, but. Uh, <laughs> No, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, this is me signing off. Tom signing off. Thank you so much for listening to our episode today. We really do hope you guys enjoyed it. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Stephen Minnie and Pranab Rao for helping us plan and ask some really insightful questions in preparation for our conversation with Tom. So we really do appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much for helping. If you'd like to learn more about Tom's story and his activities, please do follow his Instagram page and LinkedIn page at TomBoyd17. And I'll be sure to put all the necessary information in the show notes. Next week, Sonny takes charge of the ship once again with a conversation he recorded with Lifeline Worker and Above Dingra. So please do stay tuned for that. As always, we do hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Until next time, on behalf of myself, Sonny and Ujwal, stay safe and stay well.